I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, we're going to start something uh, different than what we've done in the past on Sunday nights, and um, I'll get into some of the details of it um, towards the end of tonight's message, but um, basically we're going to be talking about evidence for the Bible, and I want to unpack this these things slowly, and I want to do it in a way that hopefully, because I'll give you enough detail, it will be something where you'll actually have something you can grab and share with others that like, I think will be impactful and helpful. Um, and it will also be a great resource on, uh, on the internet for when it's put up on YouTube for people to use, and, and they're doing their own research. Um, so in my preparation for this, thinking like, I want to talk about evidence for the Bible. So I thought a good way to start would be, let's ask the question, has God spoken? Like, do we, before we get to the Bible specifically, has God spoken? In general, has God spoken? Because now you might say, well, you should start back even further than that, Mike. You should say, is there a God? And I would say, well, since my direction is going towards the Bible right now, that's a whole other slew of arguments. And I'm actually very convinced by the philosophical arguments for God's existence. In other words, the reasons to believe in God's existence, you know. The The moral argument, morality, offers us wonderful evidence to believe in God. And there's the uncaused cause concept, and that's very rational to me. Um, Arguments from design, from both the macro things like the universe, as well as the intricate little tiny micro machines that are going on inside your body. That stuff from micro to macro. Or another way to put it is the argument from common sense. Like you just don't look at the universe and the world around you and think, total accident. That just, you know, it's not natural to do that. And science seems to support the idea that that would not be a very smart thing to say. I also think that evidence for the resurrection really strongly proves that God exists, or, or what other explanation do you have for it? It also specifically proves Christianity. But I've recently done a video on that. <laughs> so, um, and if, if you're watching this online, I'll put that in the video description, a, a link to that video on evidence for the resurrection. So... I'll just say this. Most people already believe God exists. The vast majority of people believe God exists. They might disagree on the description of that God and the way they think that he would act in certain ways. But in my opinion, just getting people to believe that a God exists is completely unsatisfactory. Some people think that they've decided God exists, so they stop thinking. You know, they think they've got the answer to their question, general theism. But that's completely unsatisfactory. Like, once you know that God exists... It should be that you go, wow, I have a lot of questions now. Who is this God? What does he want from me? What does he expect? This is important because I'm obviously accountable to this God. So what is he like? What does he want? I'm going to do some teaching at some point on more on the evidence for God, but I want to focus on the Bible. So the question is, has God spoken? Has God communicated? Not does he exist, but has he spoken to us? Obviously, if God has spoken, he exists. This, this seems to be the case, right? So this is prophecy, and the, the things we're going to discuss tonight are, of course, support for God's existence. But it's a little more specific than that. Uh, some people, they believe that God cannot speak or will not speak. We call this deism. Deism. This is what supposedly all of our founding fathers were deists, if, you're, if you go to modern colleges. Um, just don't read what they actually wrote. 
<laughs> Except for Thomas Jefferson. He was, he was a nutball, but the rest of them were certainly not. Um, but deism is the idea that God sort of spun everything. He created it all, made it all work, made it all run. And then he's like, woo, went to Hawaii and hasn't spoken since. He doesn't get involved. He doesn't do miracles. It came out of the realist movement, you know, from the 1700s, 1800s. And then it's like, yeah, we don't believe any of that stuff. There are no miracles. And therefore, God exists but doesn't do anything. That seems really artificial to just throw this onto God. God, you'd make everything, but, but then never speak, never communicate, never talk to your creation, never show us anything or teach us anything. It's just arbitrary to do that. I mean, you can communicate. Creatures communicate. The things that are made are able to communicate. It seems strange to think God can't communicate. That just seems artificial. I think, though, that when you get into conversations, I've had a lot of conversations like this with people saying, you know, has God spoken? And then the skeptic, tends, the atheist, tends to put up their impenetrable barrier of hyper-skepticism, where they doubt everything that comes out of your mouth. Everything. You could be like, hi, my name's Mike. And they're like, how do I really know that? Can you prove that? You know, it's almost like every single thing you say is suddenly under intense scrutiny to the point where they would believe nothing. They would just believe in nothing if they apply this type of doubt to the other areas of their life. But they only apply it to Christianity or supernatural claims they don't like. Um, but I remember talking to a skeptic one time, a conversation with an atheist. And I said, let's suppose that God wanted to talk to people. Let's just imagine that he wants to actually communicate with people. What would be a way in which he could give us an unchanging record of that communication. So it would be the same communication for different generations over different periods of time, over different places in the world. What would be a way he could do this? Well, he would be able to say, hey, I'll write it down. I mean, this would be the most reliable way to carry a consistent message. You have a written record. That's the most reliable way. I mean, creation itself declares God's glory. I do think this is true. That's a different discussion later. I think it communicates in a sense. But writing communicates in a more specific way, in a more detailed way. It can communicate more information than we can get from general creation. So that's, that's interesting. It would be through the written word. The written word has the benefit of being permanent, of being accessible, and of being clear. More clear than probably any other way. But I remember talking to this atheist saying, okay, so he's like, well, you, so you think you know, God wrote in the Bible, and I disagree with you. And he did arguing with me against the scripture being from God. And I realized that he hasn't really thought much about the issues except in order to defeat theists. But he hasn't actually stopped and just took a look back and like, put your weapons down for a moment and consider your, your position. So I said, if God did speak through the word, how would you say, yeah, this proves that it was from God? What would be the test? How would you know that it was from God? And he answered, I don't know. And I thought, this whole time you've been telling me the Bible's not from God, yet you haven't even considered how you would prove it was from God? Like, it hasn't occurred to you what sort of proof you'd look for to show it's from God. Well, how could God prove that writing's from him? Well, what would prove that God has spoken? I think we have a principle we can operate here with. You need to show that information in this communication, in this writing, it didn't come from the mind of man. You have to show that what, what's written here did not come from the mind of man. I can't, now, even if God came down and hand wrote something, I could say, well, he wrote it himself. But then years later, you don't have proof that he wrote it. You just have the writing. So what can be in the writing that shows me that God has spoken? And the answer is that I have to have information 
that's in this writing that could not come from the mind of man. I think there's an example in uh, your computers, right? You have, you have a password. It's something you set up and you know and hopefully only you know. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, right? <laughs> only you know it. And, but then after the password, there's, there's double checks in case you forget the password or something like that. And they'll ask you something like, what was the name of your childhood friend? What was the name of your first pet? What was the name of, of, what was the model of your first car or something like that? They'll ask these questions that only you are supposed to know. See, what they're doing is they're saying, I'm going to make sure that this is you by getting information that could only come from your mind. That's the idea. Now, of course, this can be hacked and things like this, but, but this principle holds solid. We look at the scriptures and we go, okay, if you're going to tell me that you have scripture, you have something from God, show me something that only God could know that's in there that proves that it was from God. Prophecy is one example of how to do this. I think prophecy equals God. Prophecy equals God. A prophecy as in history spoken in, in advance. You know, it's history before it happens. That that's God. We've, we've got many, many psychics all the time trying to predict things. They all fail. They get one prediction in a thousand right. And of course they get like a group of followers, you know, but, but pretty much they fail. That's the thing. I think that genuine prophecy, though, where it's predicted ahead of time and then it comes to pass later, is legitimate evidential proof that God has spoken. And it causes us to then say, wow, what did he say? So what has he said? So what qualifies as proof? Not, not all prophecy is useful for this. We're going to use like a narrow definition. In the Bible, prophecy really just means speaking forth the words of God or the truths of God. So it may not necessarily be predictive in order for it to be prophetic. But in a narrow definition, prophecy, a second way of using the word, prophecy means telling the future. So that's when we say fulfilled prophecy. We meant it told the future and then it happened. Sometimes prophecy in the Bible is not useful to us because it was too close to the event that happened. It was what we call short-term prophecy. So like Isaiah says something's going to happen, 20 years later it happens. The people who were alive at the time, they know he said it. They know it happened. They go, wow, Isaiah's a prophet. They put his book in in to a high status and they keep recording it and copying it and they put it in the scriptures. But for us, you know, thousands of years later, we look and we go, how do I know that really happened after? So it's, so it ends up not being useful for the later generations. It's only useful for the current generation. Um, sometimes prophecy is not fulfilled yet. So we don't want to look at unfulfilled or yet to be fulfilled prophecies. Um, although I think if you have fulfilled prophecy, it supports unfulfilled. Right? If I've got a record of things that they said that happened, then the next stuff they say is going to happen too, probably. Some prophecy is kind of vague or poetic. Not to say it's useless. No, it's very important. But it's not useful for proving what we're trying to prove, that God spoke. Some is prophetic about the meaning of an event, but it's not prophetic about the details of an event in which case it makes it a little bit harder to use for this particular purpose. So there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible, but not all of it is meant to prove that God has spoken, but I believe that some is. So we want prophecy that is before the event, and we want prophecy that is specific, and we want the event to, have, to be uh, proven to have happened. When those three things, and we've got fulfilled prophecy. We, proof, we have proof that God has spoken, I think. Now, I had a friend um, I, went to, I went to school with who... He was into um, Native American tribal stuff. And one time we were sitting on the curb in front of his house, 
because that's when we had no money. So we're just sitting on the curb in front of his house. And we're sitting there, and it started raining. And shortly after it started raining, like, I mean, a minute later, my friend starts chanting. Hey, uh, hey, uh, and he starts doing a chant. And then I was like, I waited a minute, and I felt kind of awkward. And I was like, what are you doing? And he said, I made it rain. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, oh, man, you're you're like, I got to pray for you, buddy. Because... He said it after the fact, like, come on, this is, this is clearly not, you didn't make it rain, you're just being weird. Um, so we need it to be before the event, not after. We also need it to be specific, unlike, say, Nostradamus. Nostradamus, who supposedly prophesied about every world event you can imagine, um, after 9-11, do you know one of the most popular search terms was Nostradamus? Because people thought Nostradamus predicted 9-11. Well, what happened was there was a guy who put up as an example, a fake Nostradamus quote to make it and made it look kind of like 9/11, but Nostradamus never said any of this. It's called a quatrain, or like it's like a verse. Um, and then they put it up on the web, and it just spread like wildfire. It then started changing shapes, and people people took it and changed it, and made it look even more like it was talking about the World Trade Center. And yet, when you actually go to his writings, he never said anything like that. In fact, his writings are like it's like gibberish. I I really wish I had written one down. I was looking at some of his writings earlier, and it's like. It's craziness. I mean, it's like a madman on acid, just writing random words. It's as though Nostradamus did Mad Libs. You remember Mad Libs, where you fill in a random verb and a random noun and an adjective, and then made that into prophecies. He's like, the two shall with the cup. Potato. It's just random stuff. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. Anyhow, um, so we don't want that. We want it specific. It has to be specific. Details about an event. You know, that you can actually hang something on that. And then the event has to be proven to historically have taken place. We also don't want failed prophecy, okay? Failed prophecy. I'm actually going to spend a lot of our time talking about this. Uh, We do not want failed prophecies. Unlike, say, Joseph Smith or the Watchtower Organization, we're going to get into some of their failed prophecies tonight. If you got one in a hundred right, that means you got 99 wrong. If you got even two wrong, one wrong. I mean, what this means is you are making stuff up. Like you lied. You don't, you you are not a reliable source of information that supposedly is coming from beyond your mind because sometimes you're wrong. You can't even be 50-50 or 60-40. What you you need to do is you need to get, get it right all the time. I mean, as a human, my standard would be like, look, if you got it right 80% of the time, I'd be blown away. And I would look at you and be like, man, tell me what's coming next. Because I'd be like, 80% of the time, right? I mean, if you were working the stock market, that would be good enough for you. (laughs) But the Bible actually agrees, although it's more strict than I would be, the Bible agrees with me. So let's look at this. Uh, You're going to flip through several passages now. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. God actually lays out this same condition for proving that he has spoken. He's like, how are you going to know I spoke? Because it'll happen. I will give you information that does not come from the mind of man. And then you'll get verification. So the Bible doesn't say, believe the Bible because we say believe the Bible. In fact, God says, no. Believe it because it happens. It's really interesting. Deuteronomy 18, 21 says, And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? That's the question. Here's the answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. 
the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. I mean, don't respect him. Don't give him any place in your society or in your group or anything like that. Have no fear over that prophet. Turn to Jeremiah 28. Jeremiah 28, 9. Jeremiah dealt with a lot of false prophets in his day, and he was comparing himself to them, and, and God was pretty adamant about this. There was a reason why Jeremiah was frustrated was because there were false prophets. It's easy to fake prophecy. I just say something generic about you, right? We do all the time with the horoscopes. Oh, you know, an old acquaintance shall renew your joy. Like Facebook friend request, prophecy confirmed. I mean, it's just, you know, it's generic stuff. Jeremiah 28, 9 says this. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass... The prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. When the word comes to pass, then you say, okay, that was of the Lord. I've actually had someone try to give me prophecy. I've had it happen a couple times in my life where someone says, God's going to do this with you. And I just was like, okay, well, that's interesting. We'll see. I didn't go take steps to make it happen. Or I was like, oh, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. That's interesting. We'll see. Now, if it comes to pass, I can go find that person and be like, hey, you were right. If it doesn't come to pass, I can make sure I never believe anything they say. And I think this is actually kind of important that we are serious about people. If they give us a, a word from God and it's not, then we need to actually call them out. Like you made a, you made a claim, a big claim. If we were in ancient Israel, we would be stoning you now. It's a big deal. Well, I'm going to read you some more passages. Um, Ezekiel 33, verse 33. Ezekiel 33, 33. It says, And when this comes to pass... Surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Ezekiel speaking. He's like, hey, I'm not just telling you, believe me, because I tell you to believe me. Like false prophets, what they'll do is, when you say, I doubt you, they'll respond with threats. Well, you, you doubt the prophet of God, you're going to suffer and to be destroyed, and God's mad at you. The true prophets are like, all right, wait. <laughs> just wait. Then it's going to come to pass. Isaiah 41, verses 21 through 24, it says this. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. He's asking for false prophets and, and fake gods. Because Isaiah, this passage in Isaiah, these several chapters, 40 through 45, it's like major anti, um, anti all other gods. God's like, I'm the only God. There's only one. So he's like, all right, present your case. Bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Tell us the future if you, have, if you really have gods. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or evil. Do something. Blow something up. Heal something. Fix something. Do anything. That we may know that you are gods. Do good or evil, right? That we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing. And your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. So false prophecy is a pretty negative thing in the scripture. I'm going to read you three more passages. Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45, verses 20 and 21. He says, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to the God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together who has declared this from ancient time, who has told it 
from that time, have not I, the Lord, he's going to, haven't I prophesied? And they had at that point confirmed prophecy. Um, he says, and there is no God besides me, a just God and a savior. There is none besides me. Let's read on. First Samuel chapter three, verses 19 and 20. Here's how Samuel was approved as a prophet before the people of God. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground, meaning what he said happened. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Why? Because what he said happened. Because what he said happened. And finally, in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, it says this, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke uh, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So again, just recognizing that the prophecy confirms that it's from the mind of God. And Christianity is really the only religion that I'm aware of that actually says, hey, if it doesn't come to pass, it's fake. And it's like throughout the Testaments, I mean, I, I read to you from Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, 1 Samuel, and 2 Peter. Like consistently throughout the Bible, there's this idea that you better speak what, what happens before it happens or we're not going to believe you're a prophet. I remember one time meeting a guy in the park who told me he was an angel. I meet some interesting people in my life. <laughs> told me he was an angel. And I, and I sat there and I thought, I mean, I believe that angels are real. But this guy seemed weird. Okay, not angelic, just weird. And so I just thought, test all things, right? Hold fast, that was as good. So he said, I'm an angel. I said, okay. Prove it. <laughs> do something. <laughs> do something that only an angel could do. And I'll be like, whoa, sorry, buddy. <laughs> he, you know what he did? He opened up his wallet and he pulled out a photograph and showed it to me. It was a picture of clouds. And he said, look at the clouds. And I was like, all right. This is not what I was expecting, right? <laughs> not what I was expecting. Um, Anyway, it turns out he was married and had, had a kid, and I asked what his family, I said, what is your family? Because I'm thinking, how sad, this guy's delusional. Um, it's probably ruining his family. And I said, how, what does your family think about this? And he was like, they support me. You know, and I thought, oh, probably not, probably not. God is not interested in people saying they're prophets because they have, they're good speakers or because they're, they're motivational. He's like, no, 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 no. When I send you a prophet, I'll prove it. Things will happen to confirm who he is. So the Bible agrees that to prove God has spoken, we can use prophecy. That's what I'm saying. Now, I love this about the Bible because the Bible's so reasonable. God is so reasonable. When you read other religious texts, you see how unreasonable they are. They're very unreasonable. But reason suggests that prophecy shows, you know, came from outside the mind of man, it would be God. Well, the Bible also says it. And it's given as one of the unique signs of God's work. I just love the reasonableness of the scripture, the way it paints our worldview and all that. We'll actually be talking about that at one point during this series. Um, yeah, so this is where um, I was actually going to start in this series on prophecy and on evidence for the Bible. I was going to start showing you biblical prophecies, but I've run into a problem. People oftentimes, after seeing a biblical prophecy, the evidence for it and the fulfillment of it, they oftentimes are just like, 
hmm. You know, like no matter how much evidence is given, no matter how much support there is, they're like, hmm. Because unbelief can sometimes just be a stubborn thing that isn't, has nothing to do with evidence or nothing to do with reason for that matter. So what I thought might help us is before we look at biblical examples of fulfilled prophecy, let's look at other religions' attempts at prophecies. Other religions' attempts at prophecies. Um, I mentioned Nostradamus and his, um, his wacky quatrains. But what I want to look at right now is Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, he's the founder of Mormonism. He is the prophet, the original prophet of Mormonism. He claims that God gave him golden tablets, that he translated this through the gift of tongues into the Book of Mormon and some other works that he made. Um, he claimed to have made the best, most accurate translation of the Bible ever, which is interesting that they don't publish that and, and give it out to everybody. Um, but he also made lots and lots of prophecies. Now, what you have to understand is, Mormonism is based on the testimony of Joseph Smith. Okay, Christianity is based on the resurrection of Jesus. Mormonism is based on the stories of Joseph Smith. That's big difference there. Here are some examples of Joseph Smith's prophecies. He actually has tons and tons of prophecies. He did this a lot. A lot of times it was that fortune cookie kind of thing where it doesn't really mean anything specific. But here's some specific. In 1832... This is what happened. Um, he was speaking about the Temple of Independence. They were going to build a temple in Missouri. He says, uh, it says, In this revelation given on September 22nd and 23rd of 1832, Joseph Smith foretold of an LDS temple that was going to be built in Missouri in the town of Independence. This is recorded in their official scriptures. It's a book called The Doctrine and Covenants. If you have a Kindle, you can download it for free. The Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Book of Mormon, these are like the standard works of the church. They consider these to be right up there with the Bible, equal in authority. So this is, you can't take it back. In other words, that's the thing. Here's what was said. A revelation of Jesus Christ unto his servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and six elders as they were united, as they united their hearts and lifted their voices on high. Yea, the word of the Lord concerning his church, established in the last days for the restoration of his people, and he has spoken by the mouth of his prophets, and for the gathering of his saints to stand upon Mount Zion, which shall be the city of New Jerusalem. They were going to be renaming new places with old names. Which shall be built, beginning at the temple lot, which is appointed by the finger of the Lord, in the western boundaries of the state of Missouri, and dedicated by the hand of Joseph Smith Jr. and others with whom the Lord was well pleased. They'd already picked the spot. They'd already dedicated it. And they were like, it's going to be built, God says. There's more. He goes, verily, this is the word of the Lord. And, the, and that the new city, uh, excuse me, the city, New Jerusalem, shall be built by the gathering of the saints, beginning at this place, even the place of the temple, which temple shall be reared in this generation. So this is a time prophecy. There's a time limit. There's some from the Bible like that. There's a time limit given. For verily, this generation shall not pass away until an house shall be built unto the Lord and a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall even the glory of the Lord, which shall fill his house. Which house, as it goes, you skip down to the end of that, that chapter. It's, um, by the way, I'm quoting from Doctrine and Covenants section 84, if you'd like to read it. 
At the end in verse 31, it says, Which house shall be built unto the Lord in this generation upon the consecrated spot as I have appointed? So, Independence, Missouri, there will be a temple built. It's going to happen within the generation. That's very clear. Now, 180, I think, three or four years has passed by. 184 years. Hasn't been built. It doesn't exist. The Mormons ended up being chased out. They left Missouri. They came to Zion, which they named Zion in Utah. And they built their new land there. They did not build it there in Missouri. But you might say, well, Mike, maybe this generation meant something other than this generation. I mean, Jesus, when he spoke, he spoke of a prophecy about this generation shall, shall not pass until all these things happen. But when you read the passage, it's very different. He's like, don't worry, the time's not yet. There's going to be all these things happening. And then when, then when you see the abomination of desolation, that generation is not going to pass away until, until the second coming, basically. And so it's a different thing. So when you see that abomination of desolation, then you've got one generation. So then there's a time limit. But you've got a starting and a stopping point. But Joseph Smith, his was about the generation that was existing in his time. And to make this clear, many, many, many church leaders affirmed that this was going to happen. President of the LDS, Heber, or Heber, I don't know if it's Heber or Heber, I forget, Kimball, he believed 25 years after this prophecy was given that it would happen within that generation. Let me read to you what he wrote. President Kimball wrote in the Journal of Discourses, another one of their standard works of the church. This is a church-published thing. He wrote, There are holy places, and they will be held sacred even as Jackson County. And I shall yet see the day that I will go back there. Remember, they had to leave. With Brother Brigham and with thousands and millions of others, and we will go precisely according to the dedication of the prophet of the living God, Joseph Smith. Talk to me about my having any dubity uh, on my mind about these things being fulfilled. I am just as confident of it as I am that I am called to be a savior of men and no power can hinder it. Ironically, he, he hung his, his own awareness of his own savior status of men um, on the fulfillment of this prophecy and neither of them are true. 25 years after the prophecy, right, Elias Smith, he believed that this was going to happen. He, he said, I expect to live to be an old man and to go back with the saints to the land of Jackson County. They believed it was going to happen in their lifetime. Again, 29 years later, Heber Kimball, he still believed it. He says, brethren, I shall go to Jackson County with thousands of this people who will be faithful to their integrity, but we cannot go back until we have built some good houses. And so they were like, let's build a good, because they were arguing about whether they should go back or not because they're confused by the fail, failing of the prophecy. 29 years later, Elder George Smith still believed it. He says, who is there? Now, elders, this is a big deal in their church. They've got their, their, their elders, their ruling elders. They've got, the, they've got one president who's like the president and prophet. So you have multiple prophets echoing the same prophecy that never came to pass. Elder Smith says this, Who is there that is prepared for this movement back to the center stake of Zion? And where are the architects among us that are qualified to erect this temple and this city that will surround it? So he wanted to get ready. And let me remind you, that it is predicted that this generation shall not pass away till the temple shall be built and the glory of the Lord rest upon it, according to the promises. That's in the Journal of Discourses as well. These are all in official church documents. 32 years after the prophecy, Elder George Q. Cannon still believed it. 
I could just keep reading. 38 years after the prophecy, Orson Pratt, a hugely important person in Mormon theology, he still believed it. 39 years after it, Orson Pratt echoes it again and says how he still believes it. 42 years later, Orson Pratt again says it. 43 years after the prophecy, let me read to you what he says. We need not expect from what God has revealed that a very great number of those who were then in the church and who were driven will have the privilege of returning to the land. We're going to go back. 58 years later, the church still believed it. In the 1890 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, it included this, a footnote on uh, section 84, this prophecy from Joseph Smith. Footnote given by the church. It says, a generation does not all pass away in 100 years. Trying to extend the time. They're like, well, some people live to be over, you know, to be 100 years or over 100. So maybe from the moment Joseph Smith said it, there was like a baby born and that baby's still alive. So then, you know, you're stretching out the generation as long as you can get. Check this out. 103 years after the prophecy, Joseph Fielding Smith still believed it. He says, I firmly believe that there will be some of that generation who were living when this revelation was given, who shall be living when this temple is reared. And I do not believe that the Lord has bound himself to accomplish the matter within a hundred years from 1832. I have full confidence in the word of the Lord and that it shall not fail. I have confidence in the word of the Lord that it shall not fail. But since this failed, it was not the word of the Lord. You see, this is an example of like a dated specific prophecy proven to fail. Finally, 140 years after the prophecy was given, the Mormon church admitted that it was a false prophecy. Admitted it. No temple has ever been built on that property. And the close dated prophecy with an end date is proof that the prophecy didn't, it came from the mind of man and not the mind of God. That's what it means. Here's what the church says. Joseph Fielding Smith, that same guy, he said later, it may be reasonable to assume that in giving this revelation to the prophet, the Lord did have in mind the generation of people who would still be living within, with the 100 years from the time of announcement of the revelation and that they would enjoy the blessings of the temple and a glorious cloud would rest upon it. It is also reasonable to believe that no soul living in 1832 is still living in mortality on the earth. He's just admitting it. He's saying, hey, yeah, yeah, we think that's what it means, but it didn't happen. So nowadays, Mormon apologists will often say things like, well, maybe, well, he got that one wrong, but that doesn't disqualify his other stuff. You know, that was of him and not the Lord. And I'll be like, well, it's interesting that the Bible the Bible record is one failed prophecy, ain't you're out of here. I wouldn't even set a standard that high if it was just up to me. But that is what scripture has said. It's pretty interesting. Well, I'd like to talk for a few minutes about the Watchtower Society because the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, this is the Jehovah's Witnesses organization. It's a little odd for us as Christians because we don't really know what to make of this Watchtower thing. What you have to understand is the Watchtower is basically a publication machine. They send out publications and they have a small group of people that are ultimately in charge. And these people are considered spiritual leaders for the Jehovah's Witness people. What they have is they have a actual like publishing, like a company that is their spiritual head. It's considered, this Watchtower Society is considered, what they call it is the faithful and discreet slave. That's a, considered a, pop, a, a positive term. And it means that they are the one who is doing the work of God on earth. And they are, they're claiming to speak from God. Now, the Watchtower Society, they are the ones that make those magazines that say, awake, and they bring them to your door. 
They produce all the Jehovah's Witness material. Jehovah's Witnesses are not supposed to read material that doesn't come from them that's about God or about religion. They're not supposed to even read it, which is why good luck giving a tract to a Jehovah's Witness. They won't accept it. They'll recoil from it because they've been trained that this is something they can't read. That's a, a, a mind control technique that their organization uses. Yeah, whereas, like, in our church, our, our pastor encouraged everyone to read the Quran <laughs> because, so that they could better witness to Muslims. <laughs> I mean, knowing you're not going to be convinced by anything in it, but go for it. Um, so, the Watchtower organization does not make predictions about the future anymore. But they most certainly have in the past. The Watchtower group, the Jehovah's Witness group, let me read to you some of the things they've said. Led by the initial founders of the group and then moving on into their later, um, their later time as well. In 1897, in 1897, it was written in Studies in the Scriptures, Volume 4, Our Lord, the appointed King, is now present since October 1874. The belief was that Jesus had sort of quietly returned and only, only the Watchtower faithful knew about it and only, they could, only a couple of them could maybe encounter Jesus, but that he had returned in 1874 to the earth. To the earth. Then in 1899, the statement was this. Um, in The Time is at Hand, the 1908 edition, because they change things sometimes when they fail, it says, The battle of the great day of Almighty God, which will end, end in 1914 A.D., with the complete overthrow of the earth's present rulership is already commenced. The belief was that there was a battle going on and Jesus was going to have his millennial reign starting in 1914. That was the prophecy. Now, if that happened, it's been a lousy reign. Because right after 1914, we had World War II. And then, um, World War I, excuse me. And then we had World War II. I mean, this has not been the millennial reign of Jesus, or it's been a great disappointment, and it was largely overstated in the Bible. <laughs> in 1916, 1916, they said this, The Bible chronology herein presented shows that the six great 1,000-year days, beginning with Adam, are ended, and that the great seventh day, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, began in 1873. Thousand, okay, so Jesus is already reigning. Then in 1918, they said this, Therefore, we may confidently expect that 1925 will mark the return of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the faithful prophets of old, particularly those named by the apostles in Hebrews 11, to the condition of human perfection. Human perfection. Now, this is interesting. This is written in a book called Millions Now Living Will Never Die. I actually have a copy of this, um, I think from the 1920s, but a digital copy that had been scanned, so I got it on PDF, um, which I, I, I love that I've... I just love having this stuff for some reason. But, but in 1918, they said in 1925, seven years coming, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the people mentioned in Hebrews 11 were going to physically reign on earth. Now, in, others, in other places in that same text, millions now living will never die, as I was perusing it. He's, he explains very clearly this is a physical reigning. They will be run, running the political government of God on earth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob physically. And that was going to happen in 1925. In 1925. So then, in 1922, they reiterate, the date 1925 is even more distinctly indicated by the scriptures than 1914. Because in 1914, it didn't happen. So 1925 is even more clear. 
We know for sure it'll happen in 25. 1914 was, you know, we thought so, but, we, oh, but now we know. This is really clear. In 1923, they wrote this, and this is in Watchtower magazine. Our thought is that 1925 is definitely settled by the scriptures. As to Noah, the Christian now has much more upon which to base his faith than Noah had upon which to base his faith in a coming deluge or flood. So we're getting more confident in this than, than Noah was of the flood. In 1925, here's what they wrote. Watchtower Magazine, January 1st. January 1st, 1925, page 3. The year 1925 is here. With great expectation, Christians have looked forward to this year. I would look forward to it just so they'd see him proven wrong. Many have confidently expected that all members of the body of Christ will be changed into heavenly glory during this year. This may be accomplished. It may not be. In his own due time, God will accomplish his purposes concerning his people. Christians should not be so deeply concerned about what may transpire this year. So they're hedging. They're hedging. Later on in 1925 in September... They wrote this in Watchtower, September 1925, page 262. It is to be expected that Satan will try to inject into the minds of the consecrated the thought that 1925 should see an end to the work or an accomplishment of the millennial reign of Christ. In 1926, here's what they wrote. Some anticipated that the work would end in 1925, but the Lord did not state so. The difficulty was that the friends inflated their imaginations beyond reason, and that when their imaginations burst asunder, they were inclined to throw everything away, because after 1925, many people left the church. Many people left the Jehovah's Witness organization. Rightly so. But yet, I just read to you their publications, which said that it was going to happen for sure. And now they're, now they're just lying. They're just lying. In 1931, they wrote this. There was a measure of disappointment on the part of Jehovah's faithful ones on earth concerning the years 1917, 1918, and 1925, because they had many false prophecies, which disappointed, which disappointment lasted for a time. And they also learned to quit fixing dates. <laughs> so these are the, this is the aftermath. The people who didn't leave the organization are like, don't do that anymore. They're frustrated. In 1941, in Watchtower, September 15th, it says, receiving the gift, the marching children clasped it to them, not a toy or plaything for idle pleasure, but the Lord's provided instrument for most effective work in the remaining months before Armageddon. All of a sudden in 41, they're speaking of just months being left before Armageddon. But they're not setting a date. They're just whispering about it. Only months are left. Well, years go by. And then the watchtower once again starts to predict in 1975 the return of Christ. But now they're doing it in a slightly more subtle fashion. They're not just saying, in 75, this will happen. They're like, it, the scriptures seem to indicate that what happened. Anyway, let me, um, let me read to you. It's in 1968, it says, True, there have been those in times past who predicted an end to the world, even announcing a specific date. Yet nothing happened. The end did not come. They were guilty of false prophesying. Why? What was missing? Missing from such people were God's truths and evidence that he was using and guiding them. We agree. <laughs> we agree on that. But then in a publication called, Why Are You Looking Forward to 1975? That in 1968, the church starts whispering again. Oh, 75 is the date. 75 is the date. Oh, chronologies. Oh, the Abraham's birth. They, they fixed Jesus' birth date and then fixed it from there. October 1st, I think they said, was the birthday of Jesus. And then 
they did all these math using like Usher's chronologies and this and that, and but then you factor this in, and they had 1975 as the date. So they whispered and whispered and whispered. And what we see is why would they keep doing this, knowing their track record of being wrong? Well, on a chart that lists the the um, the number of people who are Jehovah's Witnesses, every time they say on the on the timeline as it goes, you know, 1847, 1857, 1860, you know, every time they say that the end of the world's coming and Jesus is coming back by a certain date. They get a big lift in membership. Place it just doubles, and then afterwards it gets a dip, and they're frustrated. Then a little time goes by, and they're like, you know, that membership thing worked really well last, and then they do it again. They say that so 1975 again. You have this big lift from 68 to 75. The church like went got really big compared to what it was before, and then in 75, dropped down. <laughs> and they instead of adding numbers, they lost, and then uh, they're supposed to stop setting dates, but we'll see. If they do it again, I like when they set dates because it proves that their information did not come from the mind of God. It proves that it did not come from the mind of God. The Watchtower is wrong. Joseph Smith is wrong. Those leaders are either delusional or liars. There's no other option. This is why prophecy is such a great way to prove it. I can approach a text and be like, oh, you're the word of God, huh? Prove it. And if it can predict the future, then it can show us that it is the word of God. I was going to do the Quran, but the Quran has no predictive prophecy. Meaning that you cannot prove it came from anything other than the mind of man. There's other issues with the Quran as well. In fact, most religious books will not claim to have fulfilled prophecy. I picked a couple examples, Joseph Smith and the Watchtower. But most of them, you don't even have this because they know that they're making it up. So they're not going to pretend. They're not delusional enough to actually put out dates on most things. But this seems to make it even more special when we approach the Bible. Because you can approach the Bible now saying, you know what? If this, if this book has fulfilled prophecy, it's the only one. All other comers have fallen short. No one else has fulfilled prophecy, genuine prophecy. So this would be the only one. How do you know your religion's right? Prophecy. So what we're going to do, and we'll be starting this next week, is I'm actually going to go through some of these biblical prophecies. And my goal is to take my time. That's really my goal. I've done overviews where I just mention, oh, there's 300 prophecies about Jesus or something like that. But I want to actually pull some of them apart and take a handful of them and look at them in detail. Some of you have seen me do this before with a couple of these, and I think that it'll still bless you because uh, the content is refreshed and you're reminded of it. And the more you can remember it, the better you can share it. And of course, I'll spend some time to try to help myself package it well in a way that's easy to remember, if possible. <laughs> I'll do my best. So this is going to be our series. Uh, here's my intro. I saved it till the end because I don't like intros. Do you like intros? You're like, skip, to the in- skip past the intro, start talking. But here's my intro at the end of our, uh, our message tonight. Um, I want to talk about reasons to believe the Bible. We're going to do prophecy first. Then we're going to look at things like contradictions, supposed contradictions in the Bible, how we got the canon of scripture, how we got the Old Testament books, how we got the New Testament books, why we call this and no other books the canon of scripture. Um, We'll deal with questions like, has the Bible been lost in translation? Has it been maintained and saved or has it been changed over the years? Other common objections to the Bible, we'll look at archaeology. We'll look at scientific foreknowledge in the scripture. 
Yeah, scientific foreknowledge in the scripture. We'll be looking at that stuff too. And we'll look at things like the meta narrative of the Bible, which I'll get into details there, but it's the overarching message from these 66 different books, different documents, and 40 plus authors. And I'm going to take my time going through this stuff. I hope it excites you. I hope it blesses you. This is a great thing to bring someone to if they're perhaps a skeptic and, and you think that they might be open to coming um, or to send them the video links for it. And I think that it's going to be a blessing because um, it's hard to get this content. It's hard to find this content even if you're looking for it because mostly people just do overviews. And that's what I've done in the past. Just a, a one message, 40 minute overview of why you should trust the Bible. But I want to get into a little bit more detail for people who have some unanswered questions even after having watched one of those overviews. And so I hope that it, it, it brings a, a blessing to you guys. Because I think that um, the logic goes like this. If I can show that God has spoken in this book, and that this book is one item and not just 66 random assorted things, then what I've done is I've just showed us that we have an actual source of knowledge and information from God. And it becomes the word of God to us. And that establishes everything. And so usually I teach from the perspective of we believe the Bible, but I'm going to sort of back up and establish that belief. Um, that's what we're doing. Sunday nights, and we'll be doing it for the next um, several weeks, I think. <laughs> it's going to take several weeks. Uh, but I'm excited about it, and I'm going to try and do my best, and hopefully it's a blessing to you guys. Uh, let's pray, and then I'll take any questions you guys have. Father, we ask for your wisdom, Lord, as we do this. We, we want to be those who use our full minds to, to, to love you with all that we have but who don't lean on our own understanding. So help us find that balance. We pray, Lord, for wisdom. We pray for uh, knowledge and to be equipped in ways that would help us to be better witnesses to the world. We pray, Father, that you would guide us in all truth. In Jesus' name, amen.